Federal agencies are moving into the spend-it-or-lose-it stage of the fiscal year with just two weeks to go. But it looks as if when the books are closed, contract obligations for fiscal 22 will have been bigger than last year, current year. We get details from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. So while people are pushing for sales, agencies are pushing for spending? Tom, it looks like we're uh, sizing up the last couple of weeks of the current fiscal year to be a traditionally strong one. I took a look at the numbers recently that are posted on Federal Procurement Data Systems site. And while those aren't as accurate as people would like them to be, they're a good barometer. And what they showed was, especially for the top civilian agencies, they're on track to either match or exceed what they spent in last fiscal year. There was a lot of concern at the beginning of this fiscal year, even six months ago, that agencies would be able to obligate all of their appropriated dollars with the lateness with which Congress past appropriations bills. So hats off to the acquisition community for being able to work very hard and very quickly to get as much obligated contract dollars out the door. Being able to meet or exceed last year's dollar totals is something I think very few contractors would have forecasted if you were talking to them back the beginning of the summer. And you cite one agency that you looked up that still has a $9 billion leftover so far with two weeks to go. And which agency is that and what's likely to happen there? Tom, that's the Department of Veterans Affairs. When I look, they have $9 billion in terms of lag between where they were at the end of last fiscal year and where they are right now. That's a lot of money. And I anticipate the Department of Veterans Affairs will close that gap. Spending on veterans is something that Congress appropriated money for. It's something that's got bipartisan support. Conversely, if the Department of Veterans Affairs were to leave several billion dollars on the table unobligated, I think they know and everybody knows that Congress would shift into its oversight capacity and ask why appropriated dollars weren't actually put in to use supporting veterans for health care benefits, variety of other programs. So I expect that we'll see the VA close that gap and end up at or pretty close to where they were for FY21. Is there anything that contractors at this point can still do? I know we've talked about some of the last two month types of efforts, last six weeks types of efforts. Now we're really in running down the third baseline toward home plate. We really are. And I think that this is a time when uh, if you haven't heard from that potential customer, it's time to pick up the phone, give them a call, see where they are, what their plans are. Are they still planning on doing that acquisition this year or are they doing it? They just, for whatever reason, aren't going to be doing it with you. But you need to know that, Tom. You need to reach out. You can't be in reactive mode if you're a contractor. You need to be proactive and get out in front of people. The other thing I would recommend uh, while you're calling some of your top customers, call some of your top partners. Make sure that they remember you. Make sure that if there have been projects that you all have been planning on over the last few months, that those are on track, that those might actually happen. Don't sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Make sure you're out dialing it up yourself. And in the meantime, I actually uh, think that it's definitely worth having somebody, if you're a a GSA contractor of any stripe, it's worth having somebody look at the e-buy system on GSA. It's not always your highest return on investment, Tom, but there are always bluebirds that can be had via e-buy, and the e-buy system will be up and actionable all the way through the end of the fiscal year. And I think yearly we say that you can help your federal customer by making sure that they can be directed to the most easy-to-use vehicle 
and in some way helping them help you. That's exactly right, Tom. You never want to assume that your federal buyer knows how to buy from you. Sometimes federal acquisition professionals will definitely have an idea about the contract vehicles and acquisition methods they want to use, but sometimes they don't. It could be a case where, hey, 90% of the time they're used to doing one type of acquisition, but to get what you're selling, they have to use something that they're not familiar with. Be proactive. Be the better educated contractor. Help yourself by helping your customer understand the how question. How do I buy from you? Don't overwhelm them with acquisition options, but do give them two or three good possibilities, whether it's a standing IDIQ contract, whether it's a small business set aside, or if there's a real legitimate case for a sole source, urgent and compelling need, you know, that type of thing can work too. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And because it's such a strong sales season, you are reminding people that there's a big difference between government business, which we've been talking about, and government affairs, which especially in the larger or more unusual types of businesses that a contractor (laughs) might be in, they need to maintain that distinction. Tom, what I'm really talking about here is that government business people and their government affairs colleagues in the same companies can oftentimes cross wires, and that doesn't need to happen. Government business people who are out pursuing their workaday business, helping to close business and drive up their revenue, and the government affairs team has their own charge too. Both sets of individuals are important to their company. Both have special talents and special relationships. Ideally, if you're going to use government affairs in your government business, it's going to be to leverage the government affairs people's relationships, their knowledge, their ability to get into senior parts of an agency or even up to Capitol Hill. Not this time of year, obviously, but in a different time of year, directed spending is back and alive in Washington. And it's that type of thing that government affairs people can help with. But if you're a government business person, you have to realize that your government affairs team isn't there just to be an augmentation of your business development operation. They've been charged by your company with doing a whole host of things. It could be tax, law, labor, whatever it might be. They have their own list of priorities, their own list of relationships that they want to protect, just like the business people want to protect their relationships. Sure. So, Tom, the bottom line here is communication. If you communicate well, then both of these parts of the company can work together. If you don't communicate well, well... I've seen some recent experiences where companies have actually made themselves not look too smart in front of (laughs) their prospective government customer, wondering why those parts of the company don't get their act together before they go knock on the door of the potential customer agency. Sure. Jerry Connolly is not on the source selection board anywhere. (laughs) That's right. He's a very important person and potentially about to become more important in the next Congress but he's not a contracting officer. And finally, with this continuing resolution about to happen, there is some specifics in it that the White House is seeking. What are the top two or three things contractors should look for to maybe get some business out of that whole affair? Tom, what we're talking about here is this continuing resolution that is likely to go through the middle of December, which I think is good news. Uh, You don't really like to have continuing resolutions, but if you're going to have them, You'd rather have them for a period of months than a couple of days because that gets very stop and start and that's not helpful. So the administration here is looking for things like increasing aid for Ukraine, 
disaster relief assistance. I think we saw the headlines recently about water problems in Jackson, Mississippi. That would be an example of that. And also they're supporting, at least for now, a plan to expedite energy permit making to increase domestic energy consumption. Those are all things that could potentially impact a contractor's federal business, depending on what type of business they're in. Certainly Ukraine has some play for the Defense Department, maybe the State Department. Disaster relief is FEMA. One of the things the administration also wants, Tom, but as of right now, isn't very likely to get is significant extra money for COVID relief. But I wouldn't hold out a lot of hopes for that. That has strong opposition from congressional Republicans. So focusing on the areas that are likely to make it through, there might be some things in there for contractors that would enable them to start the year off a little bit better than they otherwise would. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, But we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure experience and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave, and here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.